Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and I'm talking from the Allen Slate Radio Institute at Ryerson University in downtown Toronto. For many years, Barbara Mitchell taught English literature at Trent University. Of course, Trent is located in Peterborough, Ontario, the home of the Canadian Canoe Museum, and appropriately where she launched her new book just over a month ago today. This book is entitled Mapmaker, Philip Turner in Rupert's Land in the Age of Entitlement and was published by the University of Regina Press in 2017. As the author of a two-volume biography of the iconic prairie author W.O. Mitchell, Barbara was well prepared to research and write a biography. For her subject, she chose Philip Turner, the late 18th century fur trader, explorer, and mapmaker. She was also very highly motivated. This biography is part of her own family history. Turner is her great-great-great-great-grandfather. Barbara, welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Thank you. It is so great to have a chance to talk to you about Philip Turner, who I first became acquainted with while researching and writing a history and guide to the Churchill River. We relied heavily on Turner's journal, which was published as part of a volume on the journals of Samuel Hearn and Philip Turner that was published a very long time ago by the Champlain Society. Now, the journal that Turner kept was highly technical, so technical that he didn't even mention his Cree wife. Tell us what you know about your great-great-great-great-grandmother and her relationship with Philip Turner. It's very interesting that you began at that point, because I certainly want to acknowledge my four-times great-grandmother, who is not named or mentioned in any of Turner's journals or correspondence. But we know she existed because we've heard of her son, their son, Joseph Turner. So it's interesting that you started at this point. The first time I heard of Philip Turner was when my uncle, who was an amateur genealogist, brought a chart to one of our Thanksgiving dinners. At that point, I had not known of any of my family members except my grandparents. He put up this genealogical chart on the wall, and that's when I discovered Philip Turner for the very first time. And beside Philip Turner's name was a mention of a Cree wife whom Turner had taken back to England with him in, um, well, it didn't say when, but had taken her back to England. And I actually wanted to write the biography of this Cree woman. I soon discovered that there was no documentation at all and that there was a great deal of documentation on Philip Turner himself, including his journals, So I began working on Philip Turner. I think more than my choosing him, he chose me. So that's how it it began with his wife. She was never taken back to England, and I think what got confused was that he did two stints in Rupert's Land, and the first one ended in 1787 when he went back to England for a couple of years. And at that time, when he went back, he married an English woman, Elizabeth Hallett. And I think that somehow in oral history, these two women had become amalgamated because the Cree woman was often called Elizabeth. But in fact, I don't believe that that was her name. So that was my introduction to his Cree wife. And they had a son, Joseph, as I mentioned, and we think that it was sometime in 1781 or to 1783. There's not a specific date, 
but in one of my sections in the biography, I imagine, and I choose one of the dates, and I imagine how this offer of a wife was enacted. And I thought perhaps I could read this as a passage from Turner's journal, where he describes the custom of offering a woman and also describes the value of these Cree women and their roles in the fur trade. So could I read that passage? Yes, for sure, Barbara. That would be excellent. Please go ahead. So here is Philip Turner writing in his journals on July the 10th, 1780. The masters of most of your honors inland settlements, particularly those belonging to York Fort, would labor under many difficulties was they not to keep a woman, as above half the Indians that came to the house would offer the master their wife the refusal of which would give great offense to both the man and his wife. Though he was to make the Indian a present for his offer, the woman would think herself slighted, and if the master was to accept the offer, he would be expected to clothe her, and by keeping a woman, it makes one short ready answer, that he has a woman of his own and she would be offended, that is offended if he took another woman. And very few Indians make that offer when they know the master keeps a woman. And those women are as useful as men upon the journey. I think it's not often that you see in the journals and writing of the fur traders this kind of recognition of the value of women and their role in the fur trade. So that passage from Turner is often quoted. Yes, in my experience, women were essential to the fur traders in terms of their interaction and connection to the various groups that they dealt with and that uh, these women played an absolutely critical role in the fur trade. Now, you Mm -hmm. use a very unique technique in your book, at least from the perspective of historians. You weave in your own personal voice. Can you describe your technique to us? Mm -hmm. Well... I suspect that this strategy was influenced by my English literature background. I think I wanted to map the interior, and I was frustrated that Turner did not expose any of his interior. He was a very businesslike man. It was what he was expected to do, and he did it. And so there's very few glimpses that we have into his interior. So I really wanted to be able to speculate and imagine what kind of a man he was. And I wanted, as I said just a few minutes ago, in the terms of taking a Cree wife, I wanted to be able to imagine that and give her some presence in the biography as well. So I developed the idea of writing my own personal journals. And so interwoven in the book are, I think, 15 personal journals where I find the space to speculate or imagine or talk about places that Turner visited that I also visited and the kind of aura that is developed around a place that you know your subject has walked on 200 years earlier. So I did that, and it was a bit of a gamble, But what I hear from my readers is that it has really worked quite well. And what it has done is make, for me it did this as well, but I think for readers, it made history very personal. 
I agree completely. It was actually a wonderful part of the book. I couldn't wait to get to your journal sections. <laughs> it also allowed you to speculate a bit more than you would in the regular text, which I found fascinating. And I often thought that your speculations based upon your own experience and knowledge was tremendous. Can you tell us why the Hudson's Bay Company hired Turner as a mapper and surveyor in the first place? Well, they realized this was a period when the Hudson's Bay Company realized that they were losing trade to the Montreal traders. The Montreal traders, by about 1774, had a good many canoes inland for trading. I think about 60 canoes inland, whereas the Hudson's Bay itself was trading on the forts on Hudson Bay and James Bay. And that was a long journey for the Cree to come to trade. So they recognized, particularly Samuel Wegg, who was deputy governor of the Hudson's Bay at the time, he was very keen to take the trade inland to the Saskatchewan River area and compete with the Montreal traders. So the first thing that happened with Samuel Hearn was sent to establish Cumberland House, which he did in 1774. And he did a little bit of mapping himself, but it was not thought to be quite accurate enough. I could speak about that a little bit later. But the company realized they really needed somebody who could accurately survey the routes and where possible settlements might go. William Wales was the man who recommended Turner to the Hudson Bay Company. And he was a very prominent man. He'd been the astronomer on Captain Cook's second voyage. He'd been to Churchill himself in 1769 to witness the transit of Venus. And he was now head of mathematics at Christ Hospital School. So he was very prominent. He was a member of the Royal Society. And he recommended Turner for the job. How he knew Turner, I don't know. But this certainly meant that Turner must have been well-trained and qualified because he'd come to the attention of such an important man as William Wales. And Barbara, can you tell us why Turner would have accepted such a position? I mean, he would have understood that he was facing enormous hardship and rigors to go into the North American wilderness at that point. After all, he was living in England in a pretty, I would say, reasonably comfortable circumstances. So what prompted him to go? Well, he drops one little hint in his journals when he tells one of the Montreal traders that he had imagined himself going to the South Sea, but in that he was, quote, disappointed. I think, who knows, maybe he thought he could sign on with Captain Cook and go on some of those world voyages. He, I think, was bitten by the spirit of the age. As you noted, the subtitle to my book is that he was a man of the Enlightenment. And that involved, you know, tremendous interest in discoveries and explorations and empirical knowledge. And Cook was making all these worldwide voyages. I mentioned William Herschel, who was examining the skies and located Uranus. And there were other people like Joseph Banks, who was interested in the science of botany. So that was sort of part of the spirit of this age, I think. And maybe that brought Turner into the desire to go to Canada. He must have known Wales, and perhaps Wales' stories of Churchill intrigued him. And I don't think that Turner was really afraid of, you know, of leaving that green and pleasant land, I think he was one for adventure. It interests me that when you 
read the first incident that he describes once he takes off on the upper track on the Nelson River. You know, he doesn't talk about the difficulties or the mosquitoes or the cold weather or anything like that. He just probably for the first time ever gets in a canoe and starts going. So I think he must have been a man of some independent spirit and courage. Yes, it sounded like he very much wanted adventure in his life, and that's exactly what he got. Now, he was expected to be more than a mapper and surveyor by the Hudson Bay Company. He also had to work in the trade itself, and he was expected to record his observations about the trade so that his Hudson's Bay Company masters back in London could better assess the situation. Can you describe some of Turner's observations on the fur trade, including the regular use of alcohol? Yes. I think his, his opinion was that the Montreal traders, some of them, were ruthless and tended to violence and certainly tended to using alcohol as an enticement to bring furs to their separate companies. I'm sure he would distinguish between some of the good people and those who were a little bit more ruthless. He talks about an incident called the Eagle Hills incident. He says at one point, I was nearly in the wars. And this incident sort of shows how the Cree themselves were very concerned about the use of alcohol and the unfair trading practices. One of their men, called Kiposh, had become unruly as a result of drinking too much liquor, and two of the traders gave him a lethal dose of laudanum, which was opium and alcohol, and he died. So in this time period, which was 1779, the Cree had decided to do something about these unfair trading practices and to revenge the death of Kiposh. So they arrived at the Eagle Hills, 120 in number, intending to fight or to make a point. Some other things broke out which inflamed the original incident. There was a man named Cole who accused the Cree of stealing his horses. So that really got them going. And in fact, two of the Montreal traders were killed and Cree were wounded in the ensuing battle. So that was a perfect example of the bad effects of alcohol. And, you know, I don't want to whitewash the situation, but I think that, uh, generally speaking, the feeling is that the HBC was a little bit more careful. They didn't particularly approve of trading in alcohol, but they recognized that they had to do it in order to get furs, and they were a financial venture, so they certainly wanted to get as many furs as they could. So that was the dilemma that Turner himself recognized, too, that To get the Cree to work as guides and to get them to trade, you had to deal in liquor. But he was aware that that this was a problem, and I think he tried to uh, manage it, given the time. Now, during the subsequent years of exploration and trading, basically during the short period that he was in the Northwest, he worked with some very remarkable individuals. He also met some very famous explorers. Can you tell us a little bit about some of these relationships? First of all, David Thompson. How did the two get on? I think they got on well. The story behind that is, so this is when Turner has completed his first three contracts. So he spent nine years in Rupert's Land and surveyed the rivers that drained into the Hudson's Bay, the Albany, Moose, Missinabe, done all that work and, and produced quite a few maps, I guess probably 
seven or eight by that time. He then went back to England and maybe was not even thinking of coming back, and then was persuaded by this same man, William Wales, as well as another very significant man, Sir Neville Maskelyne, who was the astronomer royal, worked at the Greenwich Observatory, and another man, Dalrymple, who was the hydrographer for the East India Company. Anyway, these three men convinced Turner to come back because they wanted some more expert surveying done, this time of the North Country, the Athabasca Lake and Great Slave Lake. So he sort of changed direction at that point and changed his feeling about what he was doing as well. I think when he first came out, he knew exactly what he was had been hired to do, and he was also a trader for about five years. But when he came over from England the second time, he says he came for the love of science. So it was sort of a new um, mode for him, a new direction to be considering more the, I guess, the surveying and the map making, putting the focus on that activity. So that's a little bit of background to that. When Turner was at Cumberland House and trying to set up his team to go north, he wanted to have an assistant astronomer. So he'd heard of Thompson, who was on the Saskatchewan River, and Thompson at this point had been injured. He'd fallen and broken his leg. It had been set by Thomason, but not very well, and Thompson was in quite a bit of pain. So he was coming with the brigade of canoes going to York Factory. They always stopped at Cumberland House on their way to York Factory. So they did so, and here was Turner. And Turner thought that he could train David Thompson to become his assistant for the trip north. Now, Thompson had some training in mathematics, and he had worked with Samuel Hearn a little bit, so Samuel Hearn probably showed him some surveying skills. But he said that this was a fortuitous moment in his life. I think he said the best thing that could have happened to him was to meet Philip Turner here at Cumberland House, because there he was well-trained by an excellent master of the science of practical astronomy. And so they worked together, and the unfortunate part was that Thompson's leg just did not get much better. Turner did not think Thompson could manage the rigors of going to the north. And also Thompson had been taught by Turner how to do the calculations to find longitude measurements. And he'd spent so much time working in candlelight that I think he had nearly gone blind in one eye. So that wasn't going to work. So Turner had to turn him down, and Thompson went back to York Fort and got much better and then went on to have a an illustrious career. So that's another story. But that didn't work out. And then the other man who was down on the Saskatchewan was Peter Fiddler. And Turner, when Thompson couldn't do it, he asked for Peter Fiddler to be sent up to him at Cumberland House. And he began tutoring Peter Fiddler. Now, Peter Fiddler had a bit more knowledge of astronomy than Thompson did. But like Thompson, he found that this was a turning point in his life. And in 1791, I think Turner said Fiddler had turned astronomer, which was the term for knowing practical astronomy that would allow you to find both latitudes and longitudes. Well, for sure, both Thompson and Fiddler were superbly trained by Turner, and so that was really a major, major 
produced a major change in both of their lives. Now, Turner suddenly returned to England in 1792, and he ended up teaching navigation in London. Why was that? He went back in 1792 because he didn't, in fact, want to return to England. When he came back from Lake Athabasca, Great Slave Lake, and so on, he was actually hoping that the chief factor, William Thomason, would allow him to mount another expedition to the north and investigate other routes coming out of Great Slave Lake and Athabasca, coming from the east this time. Unfortunately, the chief factor, Thomason, was very focused on developing the Saskatchewan River settlement. He and Turner had had considerable differences of opinion about this. So when Turner came back, he offered to set off right away to do this, and Thomason refused him. So it was rather reluctantly that Turner actually returned to England, but he could see that everything that he wanted to do was done in Rupert's Well, and and Lake Athabasca and Great Slave Lake are not actually in Rupert's Land because those waters drain into the Arctic, so they're not considered part of Rupert's Land. At any rate, Turner had done what he had set out to do, so that was that. And when he went back to England, he did set up a navigation school, in Rotherhithe, where he taught navigation. We don't know much about it. We know that he rented a place in Rotherhithe, which is on the South Thames, an area of great thriving ship business in those days. He stayed there till about 1799, when he then moved to Clerkenwell. But he not only taught navigation, he probably realized that that wasn't bringing in enough money for him. And so he arranged to act as a computer for Neville Maskelin. And a computer was one who did calculations and corrections for the nautical almanac. And so he worked from 1796, I think, until about 1799, he worked for masculine and barely made a living, really. He was quite impoverished by the end of his life. So it's a rather sad ending. I Perhaps I don't want to disclose all that. Maybe people should get the book and read the story. Well, it's a very common fate for many of the great adventurers and explorers that their lives end up at the end in poverty, and that yeah. was certainly true for David Thompson as well. It was. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for this interview. This is the Champlain Society podcast, Witness to Yesterday. My name is Greg Marshallden, and my guest today was Barbara Mitchell, the author of Mapmaker, Philip Turner in Rupert's Land in the Age of Enlightenment. This interview was recorded at the Allen Slate Radio Institute of Ryerson University. It was produced by Pernia Jamshed and Hugh Backhurst. Thank you all. Thank you.